Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Happy March, my loves. Real quick before I get started, not to stir up any PTSD in anyone, but can you believe that this week will be two years since the lockdown? (laughs) I remember my husband telling me this at the time. He said, you know that this can last a few years. And I was like, wait, I'm sorry. What did you say a few weeks? Yeah, here we are. I know for sure that I'm a way different person now than I was back then. And I hope that everyone is doing okay. Second, if you're new here, welcome. Welcome to all my old and new listeners alike. I have a little teeny tiny favor to ask. If you've listened to more than one episode of Military Murder and you're still here, please just take one minute, less than a minute, to leave a review for the show. It actually helps a ton. Think of it this way. When you're shopping on Amazon or Target or wherever, do you check out the reviews before you buy something? In this day and age where there are thousands of true crime shows, your review can actually make a difference. And I truly appreciate it. Now on to business. It's March, aka Women's History Month, and I was going through my back catalog of episodes and I realized I hadn't covered many women murderesses at all, at least not women who actually pull the trigger. But that's exactly what I'm bringing you today. Today's case has been recommended by many listeners. A few years back, I looked up the case online and there wasn't a ton of information about it. So in November of 2019, I submitted a Freedom of Information Act request to the Army for the trial transcript. And well, I waited and I waited and I waited and my patience finally paid off because two years later, I finally got the record. And what I found in the record was so far from what was originally reported in the media and what was included in the warrants that I was left completely dumbfounded. How could the media and investigators have gotten it so wrong initially? Honestly, I almost didn't cover this case, but I realized that anyone just reading the headlines would never know the truth. So here we are. I hope you're sitting because this case is not for the faint of heart. If you're familiar with the Jody Arias case, hold your hands because this is the military's very own Jody. Join me today as I tell you the tragic story of Randy and Timothy Miller. Now, let's dig in. To tell this story, I relied heavily on the record of trial from 2010, paying particular attention to the stipulation of fact between the government and the defense and the family's sentencing testimony. While I didn't rely a whole lot on the news references that I used, I did want to mention them here. I read articles in the Seattle Times, Stars and Stripes, Bakersfield.com, Seattle Weekly, and the Tahoe Daily Tribune. There's also a Discovery Plus show titled Pretty Bad Girls, 
And there was an episode on this case featured on that show back in 2012. On March 1st, 2008, dual military couple Staff Sergeant Timothy Miller and his wife, Sergeant Randy Miller, were excited to have a night out on the town. They were both stationed at Joint Base Lewis-McChord in Washington, but I believe back in 2008, it was Fort Lewis. But anyway, they were new parents to baby Cassidy, and she was born just a few months earlier in August of 2007. The Millers had dropped off the baby at the babysitter that evening, and they were planning a night out on the town in Tacoma. By all accounts, they had an awesome time out, and by one o'clock in the morning or around one o'clock on March 2nd, they left the Silverstone Bar and they were on their way home. As they drove home, Randy received a text message from a coworker, a specialist by the name of Yvette Gonzalez Davila. The text read, I'm here, are you? Randy responded, we just went home. It's almost closing time. Yvette responded, no, come get me. I took a cab here. And the Millers, being the Millers, they turned their car around and went to pick Yvette up. You see, Yvette had kind of clinged to the Millers after Yvette briefly hooked up with one of the Millers' close guy friends, a military man that I'm going to refer to as DC throughout this episode. The Millers were super chill, and I bet they kind of felt bad for Yvette, which is why they went back to pick her up. Anyway, back at Silverstone, Yvette left the bar and she waited for the Millers outside. They picked her up and they soon arrived at the Millers' house. They hung out, they played video games, and Randy even offered Yvette pajamas so that she could be comfortable for bed. Yvette changed into the PJs and they talked. Who talked with who, it's really unclear, but everything seemed to be going well. At some point, while Randy laid in bed and while Timothy was in the shower, Yvette retrieved her gun from outside and armed with a silencer, Yvette got into the bed with Randy, which for some reason was not surprising to Randy at all. Yvette put the silencer to the back of Randy's head and pulled the trigger. She then put another bullet between Randy's eyes. Yvette then jumped out of bed and entered the bathroom where Tim was laying or sitting in the bathtub with the shower running. He pulled the shower curtain to see who walked in and he asked Yvette if she needed to use the bathroom. She said no and he closed the curtain again. Yvette moved her gun up and seeing his silhouette through the shower curtain, she pulled the trigger multiple times. Tim, unsure what the hell just happened, he shouted, ow, it hurts, it hurts. He then pulled the curtain just a little bit and that's when Yvette got closer and continued to shoot until Timothy stopped thrashing. Yvette Gonzalez Davila grew up in California. She has two sisters and she's the middle child. Having an absent father all her life, the Davila girls and their mama moved frequently, but Bakersfield was their home. Yvette was often a shy girl, never a good student, and she preferred to be more of a fly on the wall. Never wanting to excel or completely suck, she just flew under the radar. She graduated from West High School in 2003 and then enrolled in Bakersfield College where she really wanted to get into the dental hygiene career field. But her entry exams were so atrocious that she had to take remedial classes before she could even begin college-level education. While in school, she began her first gig at Home Depot, and she was thrilled to have her own little pocket change. The Davila sisters, they grew up pretty poor, so poor that on Christmas, their mom preferred they didn't visit with family during the holidays because she didn't want the girls to know what they were missing out on because she was just scraping to get by. In any event, the girls never had any money, so before Yvette began working at Home Depot, she inherited her sister's play money, 
and that's how she learned to make change for the register. Well, one day, while she was at Bakersfield College, an Army recruiter was there and they got Yvette's attention. And without telling a soul, Yvette enlisted in the Army. She went home and told her mom and everyone was freaking out. She had never even slept over a friend's house. Now she was planning on leaving to the Army? Yvette came from a huge Mexican family where everyone is in everyone's grill. Let's just say everyone was shocked that little shy Yvette had enlisted. Yvette was ready to leave and she packed up her stuff and she walked down to the recruiter's office, ready to take on the world. But there was just one little problem. She was underweight. They basically told her she couldn't get on the bus until she put on some weight. So little petite Yvette went home and she supplemented her regular diet with more hearty foods until she put on the necessary five pounds and off she went. She entered active duty on December 29th, 2004. She was set to be a member of the army until June 13th, 2008. Yvette was assigned as a 74D, which is a chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear specialist, which was right up her alley because she actually learned a lot about chemicals and their reactions while she was working at Home Depot. After Yvette completed her initial army training, she returned to Bakersfield to do some hometown recruiting, and then she shipped off to Fort Lewis, arriving in June of 2005. There, she was assigned to the 61st Chemical Company until September of 2006, and then she was reassigned to the prestigious Honor Guard. While Yvette was still serving with the 61st Chemical Company, she met Staff Sergeant D.C., now, they met through a mutual friend in the barracks, and there was something about D.C. that knocked Yvette head over heels. D.C. was married at the time that they met, but he and his spouse were legally separated, according to the court records. D.C. and the mutual friend played in a band, and Yvette would often watch their rehearsals. They seemed to hang in the same circles, primarily because Yvette made sure of it. She was sure to be wherever D.C. was. And eventually, they developed a sexual relationship. Yvette was still a virgin when she met DC, and so he would go on to be her first sexual relationship. While DC cautioned Yvette that he didn't want anything serious, Yvette was like, yeah, 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 sure, whatever. Meanwhile, she's in the background falling in love, and she was smitten, and she would be sure that he would be hers. At some point in the fall of 2005, DC deployed to Iraq and Yvette was crushed. She was worried about her, I'm air quoting here, boyfriend. Even though he was not really her boyfriend, she was telling everyone that he was. Yvette decided she was going to do a few things while DC was deployed. One, on the day that he left, she purchased bags upon bags of Skittles and she meticulously counted out 365 Skittles and put them in a jar, vowing to eat only one Skittle a day until DC returned. Which, listen, honestly, who does that? One Skittle a day? I mean, she's a dang liar. Who can eat only one Skittle a day? Anyway, I digress. Another thing that Yvette did was that she wanted to endure a simulated deployed life just like DC. So for a full on year, Yvette slept on the floor of her barracks room so that she could experience the same thing that DC was experiencing overseas. Girl, first of all, Yvette, you are on an entire other level. Second, even sleeping on a cot is better than sleeping on the floor. But, you know, you do you, boo, OK? OK, let's continue. The entire time that DC was deployed, 
Yvette was trying everything in her power to keep in contact with him. She was sending him letters, posting on his MySpace, but he rarely responded, if ever. DC was deployed and he had no time for Yvette. He told her he didn't have any time for her. He's working. So let's talk about deployed life. Anyone who has ever deployed knows that sometimes you develop the strongest friendships while you're deployed. And while DC was deployed, he became really close with Staff Sergeant Timothy Miller. Timothy Miller was an army medic and they just clicked. A few months after Timothy arrived in Iraq, his wife Randy joined him there and she was also a medic. So during the deployment, DC and the Millers, they became close. Upon leaving Iraq, they made a pact to try to stay close when they returned stateside. And that they did. When DC returned to Fort Lewis, he made zero effort to talk to Yvette. But weeks later, it just so happened their paths crossed. Yvette told DC that she was dating someone, but he asked her who and she never revealed the mystery person. But she told DC that she wanted to hang out with him again. Later, DC would end up inviting her to a gathering at his house. And it was at this party that DC introduced Yvette to the Millers. Soon after this party, DC and Yvette resumed hooking up with each other, DC regretting his decision every single time because Yvette was like a little lost puppy. She was always DTF. And if you watch the Jersey Shore, you know exactly what that means. But she was also a stage five clinger. But DC would finally be free from Yvette in the summer of 2007 when he left Fort Lewis to Fort Rucker to attend Warrant Officer School. And when he left, he made it clear to everyone his future army goals included him wanting to become an army pilot. And guess what? Once Yvette learned that DC wanted to become a pilot, oh, homegirl wanted to get a new MOS as well. By the way, for those of you who don't know, MOS is basically a career field. Yvette spoke to her supervisor and she said she wanted to transfer into the air traffic control career field. And do you know why she did this? so that she could be in close communication with the pilots. While DC was at Fort Rucker, Yvette tried to keep the lines of communication open with him again, just like she did when he was in Iraq. But honestly, he wasn't interested in her that way. But at the same time, he just kind of felt bad for her. He didn't want to be a complete jerk. Meanwhile, Yvette was clinging to anything that she could to stay close to DC. So she picked the Millers. She decided that she would cling to them to remember DC. And in plus, in her mind, she felt if she remained in the Miller's life, then DC would always be close by. And of course, Yvette thought that maybe the Millers could put in a good word for her and that DC would eventually open his eyes and want to be with her, right? Wrong. The Millers continued to hang out with Yvette probably because they felt sorry for her. And listen, the Millers were not okay with DC ever speaking poorly about Yvette. So let's talk about some things that Yvette was doing while DC was at Fort Rucker. While he was away, Yvette was scribbling things like I love DC and she was writing her first name and DC's last name on a notebook, kind of like a love struck teenager. Yvette was obsessed with DC. And again, she turned to MySpace to monitor who was posting on his page. And there was an incident in the summer of 2007 when Yvette posted on someone's MySpace page saying, quote, I will cut you. He's mine, mine. She also wrote, quote, he's my man, my boyfriend. I got nearly two years over you. I'm the business. You're not, end quote. Girl, you need to calm the heck down. Now, I don't know who this person was because the name was redacted in the records, 
But DC eventually told investigators that people always joked about him and the person in this picture because they were so close. But according to him, they weren't together. It was just a joke. Anyhow, there was another incident where Yvette became upset when she saw a picture of DC with another woman. Now, Yvette later told her roommate that if DC ever married that chick, that she would have to, quote, go there and kill her, end quote. In January of 2008, DC sent Yvette a message asking her to remove a picture of the two of them because it was becoming inappropriate and that really pissed Yvette off. A month later, DC sent Yvette another message asking, quote, why do you always write me even when I never write back, end quote. Well, on March 1st, 2008, she left her last message to him stating, quote, hey, it's me, okay, whatever, end quote. Yvette Davila was obsessed with chemicals. As soon as she joined the army, she'd be chatting with her roommates about how much she learned about chemicals while working at Home Depot. Two of her roommates recalled a conversation they had with Yvette where they were venting about some random pain in the ass NCO. And Yvette decided that she was going to add her two cents, saying that she would really like to pour acid on the NCO's car and how the acid would eat through the paint and the engine and then reminded the roommates, hey, you know, we could always buy acid at Home Depot. Of course, I mean, I make sinister jokes all the time, but talking about acid, that's just straight odd. I can imagine the roommates awkwardly laughing, thinking, ha, 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 well, that escalated quickly. Well, little did they know the thoughts going through Yvette's head. In addition to chemicals, Yvette became fascinated with weapons. In early 2007, Yvette was looking online for a gun and she found just the gun she wanted, a 40 caliber Smith & Wesson Glock. She found it on Impact Guns. Right before she was about to check out, Impact Guns tried to upsell her. Probably something like a little pop-up, you know, need a suppressor? We have a package deal for that. Yvette thought, wow, what a steal. So she did some research on suppressors, aka silencer devices, which by the way, a suppressor doesn't completely cause the gun to be silent, but it does muffle the sound so it doesn't have such a loud bang. So Yvette decided on the silencer that she wanted and she added the gun and the suppressor to her cart and she checked out. But not so fast. You can't just purchase a suppressor like that. You have to actually get a permit first. And the permit comes from the ATF, the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. So Yvette submitted the application and it was approved and she got her gun and her suppressor. Yvette went down to the Fort Lewis Provost Marshal's office on August 9th, 2007 and she registered the gun, but she never registered the silencer. For the most part, she kept the gun stored in the armory until she checked it out sometime in February of 2008. At some point, I'm assuming it was sometime in February of 2008, but I'm not too sure, Yvette invited one of her honor guard buddies, Specialist Nelson, to go out to the range and shoot with her. Using Yvette's gun and silencer, they fired a box of 50 rounds of ammunition which in my opinion isn't a whole lot of rounds for two people, but you know, who am I? So they shot at bottles and paper targets ranging from 10 to 20 meters away. After shooting, they visited the local Cabela's and Yvette asked Nelson for help picking more ammo. Specifically, she wanted to know the difference between hollow point ammo and regular ammo. Nelson, together with the person at the Cabela's counter, explained to Yvette that hollow point ammunition definitely does more damage. According to court records, they explained it this way, quote, 
A hollow point round is an expanding bullet that has a pit or hollowed out shape in its tip, generally intended to cause the bullet to expand upon entering a target in order to decrease penetration and disrupt more tissue as it travels through the target, end quote. Yvette was like, yep, that's what I want. I'll take it. And she purchased at least one box of hollow point ammo. And then Yvette put into action a chain of events that would change everyone's life forever and all seemingly to get back at her, quote, ex-boyfriend, who was never really her boyfriend at all. On Saturday, March 1st, 2008, Yvette texted a friend who I'm going to be calling Mrs. Schmidt. And Yvette asked her, hey, what's up? Mrs. Schmidt told Yvette that she was heading to the Emerald Queen Casino for a private first class birthday bash. Mrs. Schmidt asked, are you going? And Yvette told her, yeah, I'll go if you go, which, duh, she just told you she was going. So the weird thing is that Yvette was not formally invited to this party by the birthday girl, but I guess that's okay since it was at a casino. After that conversation at about 6 p.m., Yvette called one of her old roommates and was like, hey, what's up? The roommate told Yvette that she was at the commissary and Yvette soon met up with her. And while they were there, they chatted about life. And Yvette was eager to tell her old roommate that she was planning on cross-training to be closer to D.C. Now, the roommate invited Yvette to come over to her place. But out of seemingly nowhere while they're talking, Yvette just packed it up and left the commissary. She didn't even say goodbye. She didn't even tell her friend where she was going. She just ducked out. Now, the roommate thought Yvette was acting really weird, but, you know, whatever. And it was weird because a little while later, Yvette sent her a text and she was like, oh, I'm sorry, I had to leave, but not appearing to ever give an actual explanation. Well, what Yvette had done when she left the commissary was she returned back to her barracks room to get ready for the night at the Emerald Queen. So she left her barracks room dressed in all black and drove with Specialist Nelson to the Schmidt's house. And from there, they headed to the casino. At the casino, Yvette told Mrs. Schmidt that, hey, I'm leaving by 11 p.m. While at the casino, Yvette initially, she was interacting with other partygoers, but thoughts of D.C. crept into her head, causing her to retreat into herself. She pulled her friend to the side and confided in her that she was all jacked up thinking about D.C. again. And she told her that she had recently visited his MySpace page and saw a picture of D.C. with a new girl. And above the picture was a caption that read, quote, till March, end quote. Now, Yvette interpreted that to mean that DC and this girl would be reunited in March after his training was complete. Well, while Yvette was at the bar, she just happened to see a sign that said March on it because, hello, it's March 1st. Well, that word March triggered her. Yvette and Mrs. Schmidt were in the casino bathroom at one point. And again, Yvette was like, I'm leaving at 11 p.m. And Mrs. Schmidt knew that Yvette was upset and she encouraged her, hey, just just stay out longer. But Yvette was adamant, like some weird Cinderella skit, she had to leave by 11 p.m. or else. The entire time that Yvette was at the bar, she had two, maybe three drinks. But every time she ordered herself a drink, she told the bartender to go easy on the alcohol. Well, Yvette must have lost track of time because a homegirl stayed close to midnight. And then she was like, oops, I got to go. And she asked the lady to help her find a taxi, but was like, hey, listen, don't tell anyone and don't let anyone see me leave. On her way to get a taxi, again, Yvette told this lady that she and her boyfriend had just broken up and she was not interested in being in large crowds, which is why she was leaving the bar early. 
I'm sure the woman was like, yeah, yeah, sure. And she pushed her into the cab, right? But listen, even though Yvette didn't want to be seen leaving, the lady who put her in the cab, well, she quickly came back and told Mrs. Schmidt, your girl Yvette just left in a cab. So of course, Mrs. Schmidt sent Yvette a text message like saying, hey, are you okay? Are you good, girl, right? And Yvette responded, I'm fine. And by all accounts, Yvette should have taken her sad stalker self to bed in the barracks. But instead, she had different plans. Yvette's cab driver was Mr. Ahmad. And Mr. Ahmad did that weird thing where he tried to make small talk with Yvette, but she was not having it. She just wasn't interested. She completely ignored him. But then she broke the awkward silence by giving him a specific game plan. Yvette told him that she needed him to make three pit stops. First to her barracks room at Fort Lewis, then a quick stop at a friend's house to drop something off. And finally, she needed to be dropped off at a club in Tacoma. Mr. Ahmad was down with the plan. He's like, let's do it, girl. And Yvette arrived at her barracks room at 1230 in the morning on March 2nd. Mr. Ahmad waited in the taxi while Yvette ran upstairs. She told him she was grabbing her laundry to do it at her friend's house but she was really putting together her kill bag. She grabbed her army-issued green bag, she grabbed some clean clothes, her Glock and silencer, and the hollow point ammo she recently bought. She returned to the cab and gave Mr. Ahmad the address to the next location. He didn't know this at the time, but he was taking Yvette to the Miller's house. The cab arrived at the Miller's house, Yvette hopped out with her bag, and she hid the bag in the back of the house. Then she got back in the cab and Mr. Ahmad drove Yvette to the Silverstone nightclub in Tacoma. The entire trip cost a little less than $100, and Yvette paid Mr. Ahmad a $50 tip, which made her even more memorable to the taxi driver. Inside Silverstone, Yvette searched and searched for the Millers, but they were already gone, and that's when she sent them a message. Timothy Miller was born on September 18, 1980, in Gardnerville, Nevada. According to his mom's testimony, Timothy had five siblings, and he was always a class clown, always just wanted to make people smile. He played sports, and up until right before high school, he actually did dance, tap, jazz, ballet, that type of stuff. But he eventually stopped because he thought it was a little too girly. As Timothy grew into a young man, he talked about wanting to be a firefighter. His stepdad and the man that raised him was a volunteer firefighter, so he wanted to follow in his footsteps. But one day, a recruiter came to the school, and Timothy was pretty much sold on joining the army. Tim's mom was like, oh, hell no, 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 no. She had lost a brother in Vietnam, and she was not about to go through that. But Timothy had the recruiter come to the house and talk to the family. And well, it was the late 1990s, and according to Mama Bear, she was convinced to let Timothy join the army because there was, quote, nothing going on at the time, end quote. So in 1998, Timothy joined the army right out of high school. Timothy was excited because he thought he could be a firefighter for the army. But after joining, he found out that the army was civilianizing the firefighter career field. And so he went into the medical field instead. By all accounts, Timothy was the type of guy to give you the shirt off his back, even without knowing you. Timothy ended up stationed, I believe it was at Fort Bragg, and it was there that he met a woman named Randy. Now, it's unclear when the couple got married, but apparently, at some point, one of them got orders to Korea, and they either got married to stay together 
or they were both sent to Korea at the same time and got married there. In any event, neither of them told a soul in their families that they had gotten married. And while in Korea, Timothy and Randy recorded one of those hometown messages and it aired in their hometowns. And wouldn't you know it, everyone in Timothy's hometown was watching TV when up came this commercial and it was Timothy's message and it was him and Randy saying, happy Thanksgiving, love the Millers or something like that. And the family went berserk in a what in the world type of way. Did they did they say the Millers? Is this a joke? But sure enough, it wasn't a joke at all. When Timothy and Randy returned from Korea, Randy met Timothy's family for the first time and it was awkward for like five minutes. And then Randy melted into the family. No kidding. She became a part of the family. As soon as they saw them together, the family knew that Timothy struck gold with Randy. At least that's how I have heard it described from everyone in Timothy's family. So who is Randy Miller? Randy Miller was born on March 25th, 1982, which means she would have been turning 40 years old this year if she was still with us. She was born in New Hampshire. Randy was her father's only biological daughter. At some point, Randy's parents divorced and her dad remarried. His new wife had a daughter and her and Randy were practically sisters, even if not by blood. By all accounts, Randy was a fun-loving girl and growing up, her father encouraged her to join the army. He wanted her to get out there and see the world and be a change. And well, that's what Randy did. She joined the army and also went into the medical career field. Randy and Timothy were married in 2002 or 2003, and their marriage seemed to be going great. At one point during their young marriage, Timothy deployed to Iraq, and Randy used his time to visit Timothy's family, and that's how they grew even closer. When Timothy had already been deployed for some time, I think it was like six or seven months, Randy joined him in Iraq, and the deployment made their relationship even stronger. Once they were back from deployment, they were at Fort Lewis and they decided to start a family. They decided to announce their exciting news via holiday cards. <laughs> and imagine all the grandparents surprised when they received this holiday card that says something to the effect of Merry Christmas, Grandma and Grandpa. <laughs> Everyone was just simply overjoyed. The Millers' love was growing. In August of 2007, Randy gave birth to a beautiful baby girl that, together with Timothy, they named Cassidy, and they were loving parents. Randy was really into changing Cassidy's clothes a million times a day. Cassidy was Randy's little baby doll. Someone actually said that they've never met a baby who had more shoes than Cassidy. The Millers had spent Baby K's first Christmas with Timothy's side of the family in Nevada. And it was a great two weeks. Everyone got to love on Baby K. And then in February of 2008, Randy's dad went to Tacoma to visit the young family. The Millers were really hitting their stride as a family. And Timothy was fixing to leave the military that same year. He had actually lined up an interview with the Nevada Highway Patrol in April. While Timothy thought he wanted to make the military a career at first, once he got married to Randy and once they had Baby K, they realized they wanted to be close to family for the support. But that time would never come for Randy or Timothy. Because it was during this time that Yvette continued to be a part of the Miller's life, not because she enjoyed their company, but because she thought that by being close to them, she could one day become like them, have that type of life. But with DC, little did Yvette know that the Millers were just being nice. 
They knew that DC didn't want anything to do with Yvette and they tried to kindly remind her of this fact. But Yvette was infatuated and she would just brush them off when they tried to tell Yvette to move on. On March 1st, 2008, Randy attended a baby shower for one of her coworkers' daughters. I'm going to call this coworker Miss P because she's going to be a really important part of this story. So Randy had baby K with her at the baby shower and they were there for about three hours. During the baby shower, Miss P agreed to watch baby K that evening for the Millers so that they could go out and enjoy themselves. The Millers dropped baby K at Miss P's house in Payolup at around 8 p.m. Then they went to the Silverstone nightclub in Tacoma where they met up with some friends. Randy and Yvette exchanged various messages that evening starting right around the time that Randy dropped off baby K with the sitter. According to court records, Randy was the first to contact Yvette by phone. And then there were about nine text messages from Yvette and seven from Randy. And the messages, they, they went on from like 10.34 p.m. until 1.39 in the morning. By the time that Yvette was with the Millers in their car heading home in the wee hours of March 2nd, Yvette had sent her roommate a text message asking if she could babysit baby K at 9 o'clock in the morning instead of 10 a.m. But the roommate said she couldn't. You see, a few days earlier, I think it was February 28th, Yvette had asked her roommate if she could babysit baby K at 10 a.m. on March 2nd for the Millers. Now, this part of the case will remain a mystery because we don't know if this was part of Yvette's plan all along or if Yvette was simply relaying a request to her roommate from Randy. So was Randy actually making the request to babysit or was Yvette planning ahead? We'll never know. In any event, Yvette arrived at the Millers' home with the Millers and they played video games and chatted and eventually everyone was winding down for bed. And that was when Yvette jumped into a set of PJs that she borrowed from Randy. And while Yvette was in the living room, she heard the Millers whispering in the room about something. And while they were doing this, she snuck outside to retrieve the bag that she had stashed earlier in the night without the Millers' knowledge. She grabbed her gun with the silencer attached she walked into the Miller's bedroom where she heard the water running. She got into bed with Randy and without Randy turning around because she didn't think she was in danger, Yvette placed the gun to the back of Randy's head and pulled the trigger. Yvette, however, was not expecting the noise that came out of Randy's mouth as she was shot. So she quickly pulled the trigger again, hitting Randy right between the eyes. Yvette then entered the bathroom and shot and killed Timothy. Then she returned to her kill bag where she retrieved plastic sheeting. She went back to the bedroom. She pulled Randy onto the plastic sheeting, dragged her dead body to the bathtub, and then placed her in the bathtub on top of Timothy. Then Yvette removed all the sheets from the bed. She found some silk black sheets in the drawers and she remade the bed to make it seem like nothing happened. Mind you, the mattress was soaked with Randy's blood but Yvette was just trying to buy time. Yvette then scrubbed the walls and the floors using cleaning supplies to remove evidence, and then she placed all of the bloody items in a garbage bag. Yvette then got into the Miller's car and she packed all of the evidence. On her way out, she also took one of the Miller's phone. Due to redactions in the record, it's really unclear if it was Randy's phone or Timothy's phone, although I believe it was Timothy's phone. Now, Yvette drove and drove and drove until she found a suitable location to dispose of the evidence. 
And it must have been a really good spot because that evidence has never been recovered or at least was not recovered at the time of the trial. Yvette then made the trek back to the Fort Lewis Tacoma area, except there was one major glitch in Yvette's plan. As she was driving, the car that she stole from the Millers broke down and left her stranded on the side of the road. So what does one do when a car breaks down? You call a towing company, right? I mean, not necessarily if you just committed a double murder and stole a car, but that's exactly what Yvette did. At 8.15 in the morning on March 2nd, Yvette called Lee's towing company asking for a jump start. Mr. Juan Cho went to Yvette's location, which was on Pacific Highway near Bridgeport Avenue. And when he tried to jump the car, it just would not budge. So he told Yvette, hey, listen, I need to tow the car. Yvette asked Mr. Cho to take her down to Fort Lewis, and he agreed. During the drive, they made small talk, and Yvette told him that she was 26 years old, which was a complete lie because she was only 22 years old at the time. But she told him that her name was Randy and that she was married, but had gotten into a fight with her husband over another woman and had been sleeping in her car. Well, as they approached the Fort Lewis gate to enter the base, Yvette had to give the driver her military ID to get on base. But as she gave her ID to Mr. Cho, she begged him not to look at the picture because she was shy. And Mr. Cho didn't look at it. Now, I'm sure it never crossed his mind that he had a double murderer in his tow truck, this small framed Latina woman who served in the military. Anyway, Yvette arrived at her barracks room and Mr. Cho left. When Yvette arrived at her room, she wondered who kept calling the dang Miller phone. And it finally occurred to her that it was probably the babysitter. But by that point, Yvette didn't have a plan for the baby yet because she hadn't thought that through. She thought she had more time, but for now, she had to focus on cleaning the crime scene. So she got to her room and she went to retrieve her car keys. <gasps> when wouldn't you know it, she realized crap. She left her car keys in the Schmidt's car the night before because they were too bulky to carry. But before she does anything about the key situation, she got the urge to call DC from the Miller phone that she stole. So she dialed his number and he answered, thinking it was his friend. But he's like, hello, hello, hello. And a few silent moments later, the call ends. DC thought it was weird, but he returned the call. Yvette saw his name pop up on the caller ID and she really, really, really wanted to answer, but she didn't. She does, however, respond with a text message from the Miller phone to DC. And the message was sent at around 1037 in the morning and it said, quote, Sorry, dropped phone in sync. Speaker broke text only. How are you and your transvestite girlfriend doing? End quote. What? What? Why would she write that? What is she thinking? Mind you, DC thinks he's talking to the Millers. So it just so happened that DC was with his girlfriend that very moment. And she must have seen the message and they must have gotten a good laugh about it because the girlfriend took the phone and responded, quote, whoops. His transvestite girlfriend got this message before him and decided it was time for him to go, end quote. Imagine Yvette's shock when she saw those words. <laughs> Yvette responded, quote, whoa, do you run his MySpace too, end quote? To which DC retorted, quote, yes, to ward off stalker crazy girls, ha ha, end quote. 
He quickly sent another that said, just kidding, because DC knew that the Millers defended Yvette when DC complained about her to them. Ugh, this story breaks my heart because imagine always going to bat for someone and then they just savagely kill you to get back at someone else. At that point, Yvette remembered that she had a crime scene to clean up. Yep, Yvette was not yet done. But she had a few more pit stops to make. She needed to pick up her car keys. She needed to stop at Lowe's. She needed to dispose of the bodies. And she needed to pick up baby K from the babysitter. But all of that next time on Military Murder. Part two of this case will be up in the fan club in a few days. So make sure that if you're interested in listening to this ahead of time, you join today to listen as soon as it becomes available. What's the fan club, you ask? Well, you can check out the Patreon fan club by visiting patreon.com slash military murder. This is a place for everyone who's interested in more military murder stories to get them for as little as $5 a month. You can have access to 18 full length episodes that are not available in the public feed. What? Yes. And guess what else? Joining the fan club ensures that you listen to every single episode starting from episode one completely ad free. Never listen to another ad ever again. There's also stickers and even an exclusive members only podcast challenge coin. Visit patreon.com slash military murder to learn more today. And on top of this, you get to support the show. Be sure to follow me on social on Instagram at military murder podcast and on TikTok at military Margot with a T at the end. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions and is produced in collaboration with my bootcamp and higher fan club members. Shout out to the generosity of the show's executive producers, Nicole G, Falcon 13, Alicia, Jen, Tina, Ryan, and Bob. The music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you the conclusion of this military murder story next time. Mama's working on her podcast. I don't want to.